this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus no matter what you're going through today. Our prayer this year is to see God move again. Let our children see your glory, Lord. That's our prayer. And the scripture is clear that there is a way to see God move. And it's right here under our noses. What would it take to watch and to see a movement of God once again? So today we're in our third week in this series that we're doing called New Me here at the beginning of the year. And, you know, it's been a great series so far. The first week you guys preached and you helped us get our head around this prayer that I'm praying for the new year for us. And then I hope you're praying also. It's the prayer of Moses. We find it in Psalm 90 where he says, let us, your servants, see you work again. Don't you want to see God move and work? Don't you want to see him draw close to you to to work in your life the way only he can? Don't you want to see the blessing of God, the peace of God that passes all understanding? Don't you want to see him change your life? Mm, So we're praying this prayer. Lord, let us see you work again. Lord, let it not be just some little flash in the pan, but Lord, let our children see your glory. Lord, move in such a way that our kids and our grandkids can't stop talking about it. Lord, move in such a way that it affects generation after generation. Lord, do something in and through us. And may the Lord our God show us his approval and make our efforts successful. Yes, make our efforts successful. So we've been talking about this. How do we find this blessing of God, this approval of God, the smile of God? And and we know that God honors when his people are on his Mission, right? When we are doing what he does, when our lives resonate with what he is all about in the world today. And so we've been talking about what that looks like because what he's doing today in the world and what he always does is redemption. He is redeeming this broken world back to himself, right? He's bringing it back to himself. That's what he's doing in you. And that's what he's doing in me. We've defined redemption this way. We've said that redemption is bringing value from something that seems worthless. That's the work that I see him doing in my life. And I believe he's doing in your life is he's taking that lump of clay and he's molding it into something Valuable, something that is powerful, something that is of good use in his hands. He's making something of you and me, and that's his job. That's what he's doing. And he doesn't answer to me about that. He only answers to himself. He created this universe to glorify him, and it doesn't because of our sin. It doesn't because of us. We want to glorify ourselves. And he's saying, okay, let me, let me make something of this. And he's reforming it so that it glorifies him. And so we want to have the approval of God. We want to be on task with him. And so we say that we do that by being part in his redemptive plan. And that's by making the gospel relevant to our community. We're all about 
preaching and living the gospel so that our community, whatever our community, whether it's your family or your neighbors or your coworkers or the people in your life group, wherever you are, we take the gospel and we do whatever we gotta do to make it relevant to where you are right now today because we wanna see God work in your life. That's what we do. And so um, we always talk about our methodology for doing that. Uh, we believe that God's given us two great commands and we practice those. We believe that we make the gospel relevant by obeying him, by following him, by just doing what he does. So we love God, we love others, and we make disciples. That's kind of what we do. And you may have noticed that February the 5th is an important day for us. Uh, we've even got signs up now about that because uh, Sunday, February the 5th, is our Super Sunday. And that's the day we partner together around this idea of making the gospel relevant and about doing these things, about loving God, loving others, and making disciples. And so we don't have membership here. We have partnership. You know, partnership lapses. It's only for a year at a time. And so we invite everybody to repartner with us uh, on Super Sunday and give yourself to following Jesus. Just obey him in these simple ways and see what he wouldn't do to move in your life. I really actually believe that if we just follow him, he'll do something about it. If we just follow him, he will move and act and our children, our grandchildren will see his glory. If we just obey him, let our children, Lord, let our children see your glory. Let us see you move again. We wanna see God, don't we? We wanna we want just see him move. Our problem, our problem is, is we can't see God. Our problem is we can't see him. You know, we, we cannot see God. Moses wanted to see God. And so he's praying, he's begging God, God, I just wanna catch, I just wanna catch a glimpse of you. Would you let me just see you? And God says, no. He says, actually, if you kind of hide over here, I'll walk by and then you can catch a glimpse of me, you know, from behind. You can catch a quick glimpse after I've gone by, but you better not look at me. In fact, he says this in Exodus 33. He says, you may not look directly at my face for no one may see me and live. Yep, God is that holy. He is so holy and by comparison, we, you and I are so sinful, so corrupt, so broken that even glancing at his face would end us. That's how holy God is. That's how sinful we are. I've heard it said by preachers in the past that God cannot abide our sin. He cannot coexist with our sin in our life. And I just want to assure you, I've read the Bible. My sin, your sin is no threat to God whatsoever. It's a threat to you. Your sin is a threat to you. Because I agree, God will not cohabit with your sin. One of them has to go. So the scripture says, in the presence of God, the darkness has to flee. We, can, we look at God and we what? If we look at God, what happens to us? 
we die. We die. In other words, this is first blank on your page. To see God, you must be holy. In order to see God, you must be holy. And I want to see God. I think just catching a glimpse would change everything about me. I think it would change everything about my life. I think just catching a glimpse of him, I think it would revolutionize the way I talk to my family, the way I deal with my stress and my pressures, the way I prioritize, the way I budget. I think it would change everything. I would be a completely different person. I just want to see him. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay with not seeing his face. Aren't you? I'm okay with not seeing his face. I mean, first of all, he's a non-corporeal spirit being. I'm not sure that my physical eyes can see his spiritual, you know, face. But I want to see him like I see the wind, right? I can't see the wind, but I can sure see the wind's effects. I can see what it does. You know, I can see how the wind blows, and I want to see his Glory! I want to see him on full display. I want to see him at work, moving, acting, speaking, and doing what only he can do in my life and in your life. I want to see him all around me. And no matter what he will or won't do, I will praise him. We talked about this last week. No matter what he does or doesn't do, I will praise him. Will you? No matter what he does, if he moves, if he waits, whatever he does, I'm going to praise him because I'm not going to let a rock beat me at what I was designed to do. I will praise him. I I just got to say thank you. I got to say thank you to you guys because, you know, we ask you every week. We say, hey, why don't you give us response cards? We'll be happy to pray for your prayer requests. And my staff and I, we usually spend about an hour on Mondays and we go through the stack that we get of your prayer requests. And it's, I'm going to tell you, it's a tough hour sometimes because sometimes we read through those prayer requests and it's just pulling our hearts out of our chest. We're just aching and hurting for some of the junk that a lot of you guys go through on an ongoing basis. And so we're, we just pray and we pray and we pray individually for all of them. Then we pray for all of them together as a group. And it's important, it's good, and I'm glad, but sometimes it's hard. But last week, I asked you to do something different. I said, this week, please don't, don't give us your prayer request. Instead, give us reasons to praise him. Give us good praise reports, good reasons to praise him. And our usual stack that we get was like this last week. And we didn't just spend a little time praying and praying. Dude, we just got together in staff meeting and we just praised and praised and praised him because you were our worship leaders on Monday. And you led us to praise and worship him. Thank you. Thank you for leading us that way. Thank you for always pointing to Jesus like that and for giving us more reasons to praise him. We will praise him. Amen? We will praise him. Because we want to see him. We just want to see him more. We've seen what he does and we want to see him more. But it's hard. It's hard to see him because of our own sin. It's hard to see him because we get bogged up and clogged up with our own sin. And if we see, actually see God, we'll die. John, John the apostle is talking about this when he's writing in his epistle of 1 John. Now, you know, we, we know John 
wrote the Gospel of John. It's near the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. We, we know he wrote that, but you know, he also wrote three other letters that we have near the back of the New Testament. You know, so you got first, second, third John, Jude, and then Revelation. So he's near the front, and then there's a big gap, and then he's near the back. And so near the back, he's, he's written these three things. And in 1 John, the first epistle, epistle, can't even say it right, the first epistle from John, uh, he's talking about seeing God. And he says something really interesting. In 1 John 4, 12, he says this, no one has ever seen God. That's probably good, right? Because if you see God, you what? See God, you what? you die that's right so he says no one has ever seen God Moses didn't see God in all of his glory he he saw God kind of as a glimpse from behind didn't really fully see God you know we we see Isaiah he talks about seeing God uh, and his train filled the temple so he saw God but he saw God like from here down and his train he saw his robe and besides it was a vision it wasn't like being in the presence it was a vision of God you know, so we see some of these hints, but really no one has ever seen God, and that's probably a good thing because you see God, you die. die. So John's telling us here in 1 John, no one's ever seen God. And then the first word of the next sentence turns his thought a little bit. He says this, no one has ever seen God, but, but, in other words, John wants to give you hope. No one's ever seen God, but don't you want to see God? Don't you want to see him at work? Don't you want him in your life doing things? No one's ever seen him, but now there is hope. And so John here in his first epistle is, is going to show us his butt. Okay, he's going to tell us why there's hope for seeing God but before we get to the but I want to I want to look at something else John says first so I'm going to put a little place marker here in 1st John 4 like a little bookmark okay if you got your Bible put your thumb in there so I got my bookmark we're going to come back to this because it's going to be real important can you see that there how's that is that good all right so he says no one has ever seen God but and I, I want to go back from the end of the New Testament I want to go near the beginning and I want to look at John's gospel this is his account of the story and the life and the ministry of Jesus and I want to look at what he says in John the gospel of John chapter 1 and he says something really unique here okay now this is interesting I want to see God don't you want to see God okay this is really interesting here's what he says in the gospel of John at the beginning he says this no one has ever seen God but now wait a minute is he plagiarizing himself right here first John and gospel of John he's saying something he's saying the same thing twice this ought to kind of ring our bell a little bit but then after the but he says one thing here and another thing here he says two different things after the but. So I want us to look at this but first, and then we'll look at, an, at the other but later, okay? So here's what he says in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God 
is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Now he's talking about someone, the unique one. Who's he talking about? Very good, Sunday school class. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the unique one. What does it mean that Jesus, I'm gonna unpack this a little bit. What does he mean by Jesus being the unique one? He's radically different from you and from me. He's not like us. You and I are born in the flesh, born in sin. We're, we're rebels against a holy God. We've all committed crimes against God. We call them sin. The biblical word is sin. We've all committed sins against God and we deserve punishment. We deserve judgment. We deserve to pay for what we've done. But Jesus is unique. He's not like us. He's got a different nature than you and I have. We have a broken, corrupted sin nature, but he has a unique nature, right? He has no sin of his own. He is holy and I am not. I can't see God because I'm not holy, but he is holy, I'm definitely not. I'm just, I'm gonna confess. Can I confess a sin to you guys right now? Is it gonna hurt your feelings if I confess a sin to you? Okay, I'm gonna confess how you know I'm not holy. Um, <laughs> right after the, the service began this morning, right after this service began just a few minutes ago, um, I did what I frequently do. I, t I take a quick bathroom break <laughs> and I ran into the bathroom back there and um, uh, I saw the feet <laughs> in the stall of my good friend, Wes Rickman. So I go in the bathroom, there's Wes sitting there, you know, in the stall. I'm like, praise the Lord. And I slapped the light switch off and screamed, ah! And then turned the light back on. And I'm like, God bless you, brother. And then I came out of the bathroom and there was Wes Rickman standing right there. And I have no idea who got blessed by the light switch going off, but I need to confess and I apologize. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I hope your heart is good because mine clearly isn't and I'm sorry. <laughs> so whoever you are, please come see me afterwards and I will, I will apologize in person. He is holy, I am not. Awkward, awkward. <laughs> so for all of Jewish history, the people, ha what, did something just happen? The heckling crowd is going again. So uh, yeah, so for all of Jewish history, the Jewish people had a way to become holy. There was a way for them to become holy. Now they couldn't be holy like God is holy, but they could become holy you know, enough to have a relationship as a community with God. And so the way these people for all of Jewish history would become holy is they would become holy by observing what? The law, right? They would observe the law. They would practice the law. They would do everything that is written in the law. And now listen, I know when, when we good, you know, modern Christians think of the law, we think of those two tablets and what's on the two tablets? 
The Ten Commandments, right? Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. This is the law. Verily, verily, thou shalt obey. And we all go, yes, the Ten Commandments. And we all are good at the ten, with the Ten, right? We're good with the Ten. What's the fourth one? Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, so great preacher, yeah. Okay, that, it probably starts with thou shalt not. Okay, thanks. So, so we're, we think of the Ten Commandments, but that's not what the, that's not, that's not what the, the Jewish people would think of. In fact, the, the religious leaders of the day had identified 613 commands, not 10, 613 commands in the law. 248 of them, I think it's 248, uh, they correspond to the number of body parts according to them, and that's how many uh, negative commands, no, that's how many positive commands there are, you should do this. And there were 365 negative commands, 365 days in the year, 365, sorry, negative commands, thou shalt not do that. So there's 613 commands that they've got to juggle and they've got to balance. It's just a lot of stuff that they got to try to keep up with. And these laws that are in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of laws. There's property laws, there's how you treat slaves, there's how you deal in wartime, there's laws about business dealings and dietary regulations. Uh, there's all kinds of different laws throughout the Old Testament and the people were always trying to figure out how to manage all these laws. It was kind of a mess. In fact, the Pharisees, the Pharisees spent all their time arguing over how can we manage the law in our lives? Because the law, it felt to them, you know, like just a bunch of Lego blocks. You love Legos, don't you? Who loves Legos? Okay, four of you. Great. Um, they're wonderful. I love Legos, just not at two o'clock in the morning when I'm barefoot. Yeah, that will make you realize you are not holy. Right? So it's like this. The, the law was, was like just this pile of Legos and, and they're different shapes and different sizes. They all, they all fit together, but I'm not sure the picture they draw. I'm not sure how this one works with this one. Is it supposed to go here like this? And then what, what do I do with that? You know, so I got, a, I got a dietary law and I got a treat slaves law and I got this and that. I'm not sure the, the picture that it's really drawing. I, I've just got these little fragments and pieces and, and I'm trying to manage all of them. And, you know, let's just think about it. I'm, I got to make dinner tonight for my family and I want to, I think I'm going to make this and that. Oh, hold on a second. I got to, I got to check the dietary laws. Uh, I I think there's one down here. Yeah, here's one and here's one. And I gotta, hold on, hold on. Before I make the menu, I gotta check and see what the laws are. And you know, you gotta try to manage all this stuff. 613 laws to try to manage. No wonder they were always arguing about it. They were arguing not because they thought, well, I like my law better than I like your law. And that's not what they were doing. They were trying to argue to see which ones were the greatest because we can't possibly keep them all. There's 613 of these things. So which ones do we need to make sure that we do and which ones can we kind of let slide? This was the discussion the Pharisees were always having about this pile of laws that they had. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's, it's a lot of stuff. And, and when you're reading through it, it can seem really random. So I just picked a short list out of Leviticus 
There's lots of segments of Leviticus dedicated to laws. And I just got one of the short lists of laws out of Leviticus 11, sorry, Leviticus 19. And let's just look at the list. Don't steal. Don't deceive or cheat. Don't swear falsely. Don't defraud or rob your neighbor. Don't make your workers wait to be paid. Don't insult the deaf or the blind. No partiality for the rich and powerful. Everyone treats, gets treated equally. Do not gossip. Don't stand by while a neighbor is threatened. You see, there's just a lot of stuff here. Oh, but it goes on. There's more. Uh, don't uh, nurse hatred in your heart. Be direct in your dealings. Don't seek revenge. Don't keep a grudge. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we know that one. We like that one. That's good. But then look, uh, obey all God's decrees. Okay, we're trying to do not mate two different kinds of animals. Okay. Do not plant a field with two different types of seed. Really? Oh, okay. Uh, do not wear clothing from two different kinds of thread. What? What's... And it seems so... Just random. You got, you got love your neighbor as yourself right almost up against don't wear clothes with two different kinds of thread. How do I decide which is the important one and which ones are less important. And see, here's what we learn in the New Testament. We learn that the purpose of the law isn't simply to reveal the character and the nature of God. And by the way, the answer to this is you don't want to be divided in who you are. You want to weave your life together with God. Okay, so not only does the law reveal his character, his nature, but Romans tells us that the law was given to reveal our sin. God didn't give us 613 commands expecting us to just be juggling Legos all the time. He gave us 613 commands so that we will know that you can't see God without being holy and you can never be holy. You can never be holy. In other words, you, on your own, you have no hope of ever seeing God. No wonder John writes, no one has seen God. Let's, let's go back to John 1, Gospel of John chapter 1. No one has ever seen God, but that unique one, the sinless one, the God-natured one who is himself God. This is important too because what John is telling us is that Jesus isn't just some really spiritual guy. He's saying that Jesus is God in the flesh, that the full person of God exists in the person of Jesus Christ. That's part of our theology of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all exist as one entity, yet they are three separate entities. Okay, so uh, Jesus is the unique one. He is himself God, and he is near to the Father's heart. He's the Son, but he's near the Father's heart. The King James says that he is in the Father's bosom, which sounds really weird to me. Glad I don't read the King James most of the time. Just sounds weird. He's in the Father's bosom. But what this is trying to communicate is almost exactly this. He's, he's close to God, the Father. He never strays. 
You know, he never wanders. He never goes off on his own, doing his own thing. He's close to his father. There's no gap. There's no separation between Jesus and his father. And he has, I love this part, he has revealed God to us. No one has seen God, but he's been revealed to us by the unique one. He's been revealed to us. I love this. I love this because the Greek word here for revealed is actually the Greek word exegete. So Jesus exegetes God to us. I know some of you are going, ding, and some of you are going, what the heck is an exegete? Exegete just means to unpack, unfold, explain, to teach, and interpret. Jesus unpacks his Father for us, and we can see God when we see Jesus. Right, John 1, no wonder John writes this in John 1, 14. So the word became human and made his home among us. He, that's Jesus, was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So Jesus is the revelation of, of God the Father. Jesus exegetes God the Father to us. Look back real quickly at what he says in John 1, 18. It's the, the other but that we're looking at. So no one's ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God, he's near to the Father's heart and he has revealed God to us. Here, here's what I wanna tell you. When you become a follower of Jesus, he moves into your life. And when he moves in to his new home, he begins to unpack and make the space his. And what he unpacks is God the Father himself. He unpacks God right into your life and he begins to reshape you and reform you into his image. This is the redemption that I'm talking about, that his word is talking about. He changes us right Jesus talks about this in John 3 3 John again uh, talking about what Jesus says Jesus tells us this I tell you the truth unless you're born again you can't see you want to see God but unless you're born again you cannot see the kingdom of God I assure you that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit without being born of the flesh you were born of the flesh you were born with that corrupt against God nature but you, you can't stay there you got to also be born of the spirit you got to have a new birth you got to start over you got to have something new take place in your life he says humans can re uh, sorry re reproduce only human life but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual Life. He's saying if you, if you want to see him, you got to start over. You got to start over. You got to be born into the spirit. You've been broken in sin, broken in the flesh. But he says if you want to see him, if you want to see him, if you want your prayer for the year to come true, you got to start over. You must be born again. So what does that look like? You know, we, you know the most famous verse in the Bible, right? What's the most famous verse in the Bible? John, we're still in John chapter three, verse 
16. Everybody knows this one. Let's look at it real quick. For God so loved the world. What do you love? What do you so love? Yesterday, I got to spend time in Alabama with both of my kids and all of my grandkids. You know, and there's just nothing. I just can't help it. I'm, I'm sitting there just, just watching these kids. By the way, I, I've had enough bluey for my lifetime. <laughs> Can I just say enough bluey? No more bluey. If you don't know, it's okay. Don't worry. I've had enough bluey. Um, but my kids, I just can't take my eyes off them. My grandkids, I can't take my eyes off of them. I'm watching them play and, and, and run around and do it all. And I just, I just get to hold the baby. You know, Rowan is the newest one. He's just a little tiny, tiny baby. Can't even, you know, focus with his eyes yet. And I just can't, I just want to hold him. I just so love my grandkids. I can't hardly stand it. I'll drive as far as I got to drive. I'll spend as much time as I got to spend. I'll, I'll, bend, I'll, I'll spend as much money as I got to spend. I'll do whatever I got to do because I so love those grandkids. Sometimes Lauren will FaceTime me in the middle of the morning. I'm at work at my desk just trying to get something done and my phone rings and I see it's a FaceTime call from Lauren. I flip it on and there is my grandson Carter's face and he says, Poppy, house. I'm not sure if he wants to come to Poppy's house or if he wants Poppy to come to his house, but I don't care. I'm going. I want to go get that kid. People at work are like, dude, you got to get something done at some point. I'm like, I know, but there's grandkids. Come on, grandparents, do you know what I'm talking about? I'll do whatever I got to do because I so love those kids. God so loved the world that he gave his only son he so loved he was so compelled that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life verse 17 says for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him in other words Dude, there's 613 of these for you. And you and I both fail miserably at this. And Jesus could have come here and said, nope, see, you blew it on this one and you blew it on this one. Oh, you didn't even think about this one today. And look, you messed up here and I told you to do this one three times and you didn't do it. And you see this one, it looks small, but it's really important. You, you stink and I'm done with you. I'm finished with you, you're out. Look at me, you're dead, okay. That's what he could have done. But Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 17, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish this. I didn't come to erase it. I didn't come to say that none of these matter anymore. But I came not to abolish it, but to accomplish their purpose. I came to, another translation says, fulfill all the requirements of the law. In other words, Jesus steps into your life and next blank on your page, it's Jesus's love that makes you holy. He so loves that he comes and he is the one that fulfills it all. 
When God the Father looks at you, if you're a Christ follower, he doesn't see how many times you've blown it with all these. He just sees Jesus. And he says, done, you're good. Fulfilled. His love makes you holy. And when he moves in and unpacks, he's unpacking his father into your life. And it really begins to make you totally different than you were in the first place. Is that who you are? I mean, are you a person where, where Jesus has moved in and started unpacking and you aren't the same as you were when he found you? You have a different outlook on life. You have a different set of vocabulary words. You have a different way of looking and talking to your family. You have a different set of monetary priorities. The things that you valued before, now you're disgusted by them and you value a whole different set of things. You were one way and Jesus stepped in and started unpacking and now you are something different. This is what he does. He so loves that he infuses you with his love. You don't just become a better person. You become a person of love. You become a person like Jesus. He so loved the world. You know the, the Greek word here for God so loved. It's this unique word. It's not the word phileo, brotherly love or friendly love. It's not the word eros, you know, sexual love. It's a different word. What's the word? Agape. God so agape, total, unconditional, unapologetic. No matter what you do or don't do, I'm gonna love you anyway, love. You don't have that in you. It's not human nature to love that way. You can't do it. He infuses you with that. As he unpacks his father, he turns you into something else, a person of godly, agape love. So do you look at your family different? Do you look at your coworkers different? Do you look at that former frenemy differently? Is God turning you into this person of Love. I love the way Max Lucado expresses this work of sanctification that he does in your life. I, I wish I had a slide for it, but I, I don't. I'm just going to read it to you. Max Lucado says, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much, he refuses to leave you that way. Huh? So most of Jesus' teaching is about how this works out. Most of what he reveals about God, most of what he exegetes is showing us God's nature and how it comes out in our lives, how his character is to be expressed in and through each of us. He teaches us to be made more and more of him, of his love, and less of less of us. And the more we are his, the more we can see him. That's our prayer. That's our prayer. Let us see you again. Let us see you move and let us let our children see your glory. We just want to see him. So one day there's a situation, you know the situation where there's a Pharisee that just wants to see him. I just I just want to see him. And so he comes to Jesus and he's like, I'm I'm trying, I want to see, I want to see God, I want to see God move in my life. So, teacher, he asks in Matthew, he says, what is the greatest commandment? 
I, I mean, I know, I think I know most of them. I got a lot of them memorized. I, I know, at least I know where to find them. You know, I know, I know them. What's the greatest? And Jesus answers. And he gives his answer in two parts, right? I mean, he doesn't just say, here's the, the one. He gives kind of a two-part answer. The first part of his answer that he gives, everybody totally expected him to say. The first thing he says, nobody was shocked. He says his answer, and everybody's like, yeah, got it. We knew you were going to say it. That's the Sunday school answer. We, we know this one. So the, the Pharisee comes, and he says, of all, of all this... Which one do I need to make sure I got down? Which one do I need to make sure I am observing? And Jesus says, well, the answer, the most important one, the big one that you need to make sure to fulfill. <laughs> is love God, right? Jesus is like, I know there's a bunch of little ones, but there's a big one. And the big one is you got to love God. In fact, he says, you must love the Lord your God. In fact, he says it in Matthew, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the great. This one makes all the other ones work, right? And so he says this. Nobody was surprised by this because all of them say this all the time. They all are used to quoting Deuteronomy. They're all used to pray in the Shema. It's the prayer that the Jewish people pray in their morning and evening prayers in the synagogue. And they all get together, you know, from Deuteronomy here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. They all pray that. In fact, the way they pray it, it's interesting. We're talking about seeing God and being holy. When they pray this, they pray it with their hands over their eyes like this. Interesting. So everyone was like, yeah, we know that one. We know that. We got that one down. Thank you. So he says this, and everyone's like, okay, good answer, good answer, good answer. High five, good answer. Jesus did good on that one. But then Jesus gives the second part of his answer, and this one rocked everybody's world. The second part of his answer, no one expected. The second thing he says is this. Let's look at it real quick. He says a second is equally important. So he's equating the second one with the first. And he says, here it is, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. We just saw that one, didn't we? When we were looking in Leviticus 19, it's part of that long list. You got the, the seeds and you got the clothes and you got love your neighbor as yourself. So everybody knew this was a command in the Old Testament, but nobody had ever equated loving God and loving others together. And Jesus didn't just say, he didn't just say, listen, you... Number one is love God, and then you'll learn. Maybe you'll grow. Love God, and then later there's an opt-in on loving others. Is that what he said? Jesus does something really unique here. He doesn't just say, there's another big one. Jesus takes this one, And no one had ever said this before. No one had ever done this before. But Jesus locks loving God with loving others. They're not just twins that get along or don't get along. Jesus actually connects the two and he locks them together. They become one, the great commandment. 
love God and love others. You, you might almost say that you cannot love God without loving others. Let me back that up for you. Jesus is talking about coming to him to make a sacrifice. And he says this, the sac are the sacrifices in the old covenant important? You better believe it. It's all part of the law. It's part of the law. You better do the sacrifices. You got certain sacrifices at certain times through the years. So you better do the sacrifices because that's the way you show that you love God. So it's huge. But he says this in um, Matthew 5. He says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar, if you're there willing to show that you love God. Maybe you've traveled from Galilee. Maybe you've been traveling for days and you brought your family, kids are rolling around. It's hot, you're tired, you hadn't eaten right. And you got the goat or the bird or whatever it is you got to sacrifice on this day and you come to the temple and you're presenting your sacrifice to say, I want to see God, I love God. But then you suddenly remember that someone has something against you he says drop it don't even carry it with you drop it leave it there at the altar I don't want your sacrifice I don't want you to say you love me if you're not loving others he says go and be reconciled to that person then come and offer your sacrifice to God he says, don't even come to me. Don't even approach me unless you're right with others. Don't even try to fake it, loving God, unless you're first loving others. What? Is that us? Can we do that? You might even say that the way you love God is by loving God others this is huge for us because I think we're all really good at loving God I mean dude when the worship team is on fire man we are lit our hands are up we're singing we can just feel it man we can feel it we're all about it but do we care enough about our neighbors around us our friends do we love others are we showing love to others or do we quickly cuss the person that pulls out in front of us on the highway Jesus locks them together they come as one package deal and this brings us back to 1 John it brings us back to the first but so let's look at the first but again 1 John 4 he says this no one has seen God but here's the hope if you want to see God here's the hope if we love each other then God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Do you see what he's saying here in the gospel of John? No one has seen God, but Jesus exegetes God to us. Jesus unpacks God to us. And in later in the epistle of John, he says no one's ever seen God, but if we love each other, in fact, if God has been revealed to us and changed us into a person of love, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. God is seen in our love for each other. That's the next blank on your page. God is seen in our love for each other. That's how we see God move 
is through us loving one another. I know it's popular nowadays because we have television and YouTube. It's popular to see God work by making people fall down in a big room or making people shake all over, you know, or by having great worship services. I know that's popular, but that's not what the Bible says. God's love, God's movement is seen in our love for each other. That's a lot of pressure off just the preacher and it puts it on all of us. So you might be thinking right now, you might be asking the question, okay, I'm supposed to love one another. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Well, who am I supposed to love? Who's my neighbor? Who? Come on, who am I supposed to love? And my answer to that is, you know who. Why are you asking? You're asking because you want out. You're asking because you want an excuse. You know who you're supposed to love, and it's probably the one you're thinking of right now that you love the least in your life. How? How do I love? How do I? Well, listen, I can't sit here. I mean, I don't have all day. I can't describe all the ways. There's a thousand, thousand ways for you to express the love of God for other people, right? There's a thousand different ways. You, you love when you are praying for a friend that's struggling, right? You love when you're having coffee over chicken biscuits and, and praying together. You, you love when you help a friend move, right? You love when you take up the slack in a relationship, right? You love when you bring food in a difficult time. You love when you forgive, you love when you're willing to swallow your pride and say, I'm sorry. There's a thousand different ways for us to express love. But listen, I, I, don't, I don't believe that love is a one-off. You know, so we talk about loving others. And so a lot of times our minds go to, well, that means I should, I should be out at, you know, I don't know, Tower Road and I should do a good thing out there. Yes, yes, you should do, yes, please do that. We're out there all the time. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about all the one another's that he's describing in the Sermon on the Mount. When he's talking about all the ways you treat one another, he's not talking about going out and just doing a flash in the pan and God bless you, go in peace. You know, I don't think that's it. I mean, yes, do those things, but Jesus is talking about an ongoing long-term relationship with other people. He's talking about doing life together with other people because that's what a loving relationship does. A loving relationship doesn't show up every other Saturday and throw food at the problem or throw money at the problem. I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, we have a benevolence ministry here at the church. That means we help people financially uh, when they need help, but we don't have a lot of resources. I mean, we, we're not the richest church around so we limit we have boundaries on what we do we have a list you know okay if you're this you qualify for this whatever and we work with partners in the community sometimes we send people when they have a need we're like well these people over here we're their partner we support them and they do this better than we do so you know we have ways that we do this and we help a lot of people that's what we're here for but there's some people we just can't help. There's sometimes where we're in the office, you know, say on a Tuesday morning and somebody drives up that we've never seen before in a car we've never seen before. 
and they come in the office and they're like, y'all give help for hungry people? And we say, we sure do. We're here for that. And we say, here's what we want to do. We, we, want, to, we want you to fill out a form and we, we want to sit down with you and we want to get to know you a little bit. We want to be able to pray for you and support you and encourage you and love you. And boy, on the other side of starting a relationship, there's so much more help than cash we can throw at you today. And some people, I'm going to tell you, some people take us up on that offer and they engage with us in a relationship that's much more about finding value in what seems worthless and much less about cash. But there's some people that the minute they find out that we don't just throw cash at you, they're gone. And they trash talk us behind our back. And I just want you to know, we want to be like Christ. And we want to love you, not just throw money at your problems. Hello? That's what our Celebrate Recovery is all about. That's what our life groups are all about. There's a thousand ways you can love somebody but I believe that love is a long haul. It's a long game. And it's done in doing life together. So here at the Orchard Church, we practice this in life groups. We believe in life groups. It's easy to come here and you know, raise your hands on a Sunday morning. But dude, it's hard to love God the way Jesus actually tells us to love God. And that's by being in life groups together. So on February 5th, we're going to have all of our life groups represented here together outside on the deck. Hopefully it won't be a rainy day. And we're all going to be here and we've got room in life group for you. And we would love for you to engage in the relationship, not just throw raised hands at it. And we'd love for you to engage in a relationship with us and actually follow Jesus and do the first thing he's called us to do. Love God, love others. I know that's not the only way to practice loving others, but boy, it's a great way to move from rows to circles. And I love those stories. I love the stories when, when people say to me, you know, I was, I was coming to church for years. I was a Sunday morning Christian for years. And then you talked about going to life group. And I just said, well, I guess I gotta go to life group. I didn't want to, but she made me or he made me, you know, and so I had to go to life group. But then I, I got face to face with people and I started getting to know folks and something happened. It went from that, you know, Wednesday night circle to somebody in that group asking me to coffee the next day. And now that person and me and one other person, we're just, we're meeting together on an ongoing basis in the mornings and we we pray for each other we're doing a devotional book together we're reading through second peter together and we're iron sharpening iron now there's something about this that god uses to move in lives if you want to see god move this year dude i'm just telling you love one another Paul says in Romans 13, owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to God to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill all the requirements of the 613. 
For the commands, commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others. So love fulfills the requirements of God's law. I know you don't have it in you. I know you don't have another night of the week. I know you want, don't want to get with a bunch of idiots. <laughs> You'd really rather binge watch your favorite show on television, Hello, Yellowstone, again. I know, I know you'd rather be doing anything else. But my obligation, your obligation is because, is to him because he infuses you with something that's not in you. And he turns it into something that glorifies him. That's why John writes in 1 John 4 that we love each other because he loved us first. We love each other because he loved us. God so loved us. He loved us, so he gave, so we love and give. Last blank, I love because he first loved. 